Hello and welcome to Theatre Legends, the theatre podcast for legends. I'm Rebecca Humphreys and this is our interview with the RSC's Erica Wyman. Now, we recorded this in a drafty hall in Islington, so we do apologise if the sound quality isn't quite up to scratch. We hope you enjoy it nonetheless. Uh, spoiler, you're about to hear one seriously cool woman. Theatre. Legends! Hello. Hello. So we're talking to Erica Wyman today. Hi, Erica. Hello. Erica Wyman is the associate, no, the deputy artistic director. Is there such a thing as an associate artistic director? I can't imagine no. there is. No, there isn't. She's a deputy artistic director of the Royal Shakespeare Company or the RSC to you and me. That's you? right, I am. Uh, there have been associate directors before, but there was, yes. they were a slightly they different exist, role. There were some associate, there were associate artists, lots of associate artists, um, uh, but they're not employed by us. And they've got nothing to do with your job title at all. I'm sorry. (laughs) It was such a good start, wasn't it? Um, How long have you been Deputy Assistant Director of the RSC? Very nearly five years. Five years in January. And you were before that? The Chief Executive of Northern Stage, which is a gorgeous theatre in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. That's right. So you've sort of in part been responsible for a building or being a part of a building for a Uh, long time. 19 years, yeah. Because before... Northern Stage, I was the artistic director of The Gate in Notting Hill, the marvellous gate. And then before that, I was the artistic director of Southwark Playhouse, the original Southwark Playhouse. Were you? Tiny little Southwark Playhouse. Well, I didn't know on that. Southwark Bridge Road, yeah. Oh, fantastic. Okay, right. So, Not the one down Tooley Street, the old No, that one. was the second one. That was the second one, yeah. okay. The first one was Whoa. in the back, of, the back of a warehouse in, on Southwark Bridge Road, yeah. Before the globe existed, back... In the dawn of time. <laughs> back say, in back the 15th, 15th century. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, amazing. Okay, right, so you're an authority on this. Now, we've, we've, got, we've got Erica here today because we spoke in the last podcast about her statement that she made in the light of the um, sexual harassment allegations coming out and the hashtag MeToo campaign. Mm. Um, and we just really, really enjoyed what she had to say about it. And I guess... I guess what, what I've sort of done is I've got your statement in front of me here and there are certain things that I was really interested in maybe you expanding on for mm-hmm. us or like what you had to say about it. So I'm just going to dive in. Great. I've got a, something that really resonated with me personally was the, uh, was, was the fact that you said our exceptionally competitive industry fosters a keen impression that troublemakers will be punished, that those who speak out are most likely to be the ones that don't work again and that those who perpetrate abuses of power, sexual or otherwise, will be rewarded with continued success, high office, and most importantly, financial security. I compl- I'm completely with you on that. That's mm. certainly something that we always were sort of told, at, at, even from like drama school, mm. would you agree? Like mm. anyone that caused trouble was just a nuisance and people would get roles taken away from them on that for now reasons that I realised were sort of social injustices actually yeah yeah Um, like someone got you know in our drama school naming no names but I remember somebody um, actually nearly got nearly got thrown out of drama school for daring to come forward and say that they thought it was he thought it was wrong that someone in our year was getting funded even though they weren't in a financially insecure position at all. Mm. So just stuff like that, and it's not even to do with sexual um, abuse at all. It's more to do with like abuse of power, I suppose, in this instance. But where do you think that comes from? Has that always existed as far as you've been working? Yeah, I mean, I guess the thing I want to say about it is that I think the narrative, you know, our belief that that's true 
is as powerful, maybe more powerful, than the realities of it. And it's not to say that it doesn't happen. I know that it does. And yes, it goes back a long way for me. And I remember being at drama school in the mid-90s and there being a very strong sense of, of you know, staying in line and yeah. good behaviour, meaning not challenging authority or challenging the rules. And I, mean, I was training as a director, so I was kind of intrigued by that because I was also pushing against some of those rules and trying to make my own my rules work in my room so I was very conscious of it then so I do recognise that it's a reality but I suppose the thing that I was trying to get at in that statement is that we perpetuate the problem by believing that we will be punished and the person who's making us feel afraid or we think is perpetrating an injustice of any kind as you say is going to get away with it and I think I, th- I think I said it because it, at the Royal Shakespeare Company and in other organisations I've worked in, there are often, and there are at the RSC, really clear procedures and really clear um, statements of intent about the culture that we find acceptable or appropriate and what isn't acceptable or appropriate, and that includes encouraging people to speak up. Mm. But my lived experience is that people don't believe in it because something else in our theatre culture says, yes, but really? Am I going to get hurt? Am I going to survive this? Mm. Am I, am I going to get caught up in... Am I going to be defined by having said, I think there's something wrong well, here? Well, actually, I, I was, I was going to say... Um, I, I've written something down, but forgive me if it just sounds a bit like I'm reading. The problem I think we're seeing now is the judgment and comparison of each individual case mine isn't as bad as hers slash his, as well as that we as actors are constantly judged how we look, how much we weigh, our experience, our level of fame. My question is, how with all of this judgment surrounding us, can anyone expect to come forward without fearing the impacts it will have on on our careers? Yeah, I I mean, I think that's the heart of it, isn't it? Is that we live our lives in the theatre and in other other performing um, industries, we live our lives in public. Mm -hmm. And for actors, for performers in particular, um, as you say, those 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 visual and often irrelevant <laughs> facts about us mm-hmm. seem to be very very important in the mix. And I I suppose my idealistic answer this is how, isn't how I feel every day, but I I do I do think that we have to redefine our value system, and the only way to do it is to risk that we lose currency in the old value system. So we're not. Um, considered to be as hot property uh, because um, something about our appearance or something that we hold as a dear belief or the fact that we'll stand up for something. We have to accept that that will lose currency under the old model in order to build a new model. It is very easy to say it and it's very, very hard to do. When we don't have, that's why I mentioned financial security, so how can you ask people to put put those things down Mm -hmm. It's really hard, but it is the only way we will change it. And we've got to do that throughout the industry. So those of us, you know, as lucky as me to have more um, stability and permanence and all of those things have to model it too and, and make it clear that we value those people who share our um, approaches and attitudes. And so how do you make a new model then? Because obviously it'll, it'll be a multi-pronged attack on, on the old model. <clears throat> Like you say, from people like yourself in positions of uh, of power, and then people who are, you know, for one better expression, like on the bottom, 
to come forward with these sort of things and we all need to sort of build this new culture and it's almost like a political project and how do we build that and then scale it up so that it, it overtakes the old model? Well, I think in a way we are doing it already. That's not to say that we're succeeding already, but I think you're right that it's multi-pronged. But if we look at things that seem unrelated to it, like a commitment to genuinely diverse casting, by which I don't only mean um, different ethnic backgrounds being represented on stage, but I mean different shapes and sizes, different ways of approaching um, being on stage, different backgrounds, different trainings, um, different voices. That project, which is a very long-standing project mm. with its ups and its downs and, you know, big successes and then we go, oh, we don't seem to have made as so much progress as we'd hoped. But that is an ongoing project shared very widely across the theatre. If we, if we meant that every day and we, we valued it, our work, particularly critically, I think that's a, there's a constituency that's not entirely on board as far as I can see. Mm. If we yeah. really critically, we, we said the best work is the work that has that diversity at the heart of it. We'd make a difference on a number of the other fronts, of course, because mm -hmm. we'd be saying that what we're looking for in, in embodying the talent of our, our performing community is a whole wide range of things, and it's about what the behaviours we model in the rehearsal room. So you, you immediately suggest that there's something other than old hierarchies and old expectations. Of course, it is, it is a long project. <laughs> it isn't done. We've been, a number of us have been saying it for a really long time and trying to do it in the work. But the advantage we have is when we do it on stage, lots of people can see it. They can see we mean it when they see it on stage. It's yeah. not just talk, it's not a piece of paper, it's not a policy, it's, it's lived, you can see it. Um, and if we can give that work, it's why I think it isn't just about making it small and then scaling it up, it's about doing it on our biggest stages mm -hmm. immediately, because it's not um, all that complicated, that bit of the <laughs> it's project. It's not, no. <laughs> I mean, you're absolutely right about critically, it seems that that's what's, that's what's holding it back at the moment. It's not holding it back because it is still happening, which, you know, thankfully, but... What's it going to take? You know, and, and that's a rhetorical question, mm. really. Yeah, but yeah. like, what's, what's it going to take for it, it to, to just be the status quo and, yeah. and people to still not question why um, a black woman is cast against a white woman as sisters and why that isn't, a, why that shouldn't be a problem, why a woman is cast as Hamlet? You know, mm. what is it that's, that's dragging them back into and, the... And I suppose just to add to that as well, that it's, it, it, it's that difficult battle between long-term thinking of mm -hmm. smashing the patriarchy, defeating racism and defeating class prejudice alongside the short term short term of like putting on plays that can be critically acclaimed enough that they can be seen by people and also because we are within the old model obviously that yeah it's not going to be an instant revolution but a sort of slow reform. Yeah, I think it will be a slow reform, and and we and we should notice the successes because there's more definitely diverse mm -hmm. work, and it's diverse in more ways on our big stages mm -hmm. than, than than ever before. Um, I guess the other thing, though, to come back to your earlier point about drama schools, wouldn't it be amazing to see a world in which the next cohort of leavers of all our, you know, credible drama schools and drama training? all came out believing and expecting rehearsal rooms to have codes of conduct about appropriate behaviour. That included Definitely. A, a democratic approach to, to all the artists in the room, included an approach to diversity that felt that, you know, you, you, there, was, there wasn't tokenism, there was a genuine desire to represent 
the constituents that you're playing to, your audience, uh, whether that's local or national. That just isn't the case. And I, I meet far too many young actors who have been told by, I suspect, well-meaning um, teachers and tutors that they will never do Shakespeare, yeah, for example. I mean, you're absolutely right. We saw it happen. Yeah. That's what happened. You know, there were there were um, people in the year. There's a girl in the year above us who was just basically told that she was only good for servants. You know. Yeah. In Chekhov, they were doing a Chekhov, and he's you know she got a lead role and she was told, um, don't get used to it, basically. Yeah. Mm. And that is very much the attitude. And also, like there is a, in, in our drama school, I think that it, it needs it needs to start there is what I'm trying to say. Like, yes, it exactly. Needs, it needs to start as soon as you step through the door. What, uh, into the industry, into the creative industry, and I think there just needs to be an absolute reform and just a complete makeover with how they treat young actors, whether that's in the industry or whether it's at drama school. And I suspect they'd say that they are trying to serve the industry as it is now. Mm-hmm. So that I, I suppose it does take those of us with with institutional influence to say to them actually you're not serving us as well no. as you think you are you, you might be making the the agencies tick over there's mm-hmm. enough money going through the books mm-hmm. but when I want to meet lots of young actors from a range of backgrounds with you know who all look different to each other and sound different to each other who all, are all confident about tackling Shakespeare I can't because because mm. because skilled and talented young performers are not confident enough no. And, you know, there's, there's a, a kind of painful truth. And sometimes we can take about and we can do something about that. But, but it is, um, proportionately, it's really hard. It's really hard to fix. And then, if we can, it comes back a bit to appearance and, and, and women, there's, a, there's inside that, there's this insidious idea of how you have to think about your body and your appearance in order to be successful that also starts at drama school. Yeah, and isn't just about women. I pre- I really appreciate that. Mm. It yes, is a yes. very serious. It feels like an absolute retrograde step to me. You know, I'm 48. I left university at a time when it was very clear that you did not need to wear makeup or high heels or reveal more flesh than you were comfortable with in order to be a serious professional proposition. Those things were about mm-hmm. sexual attraction, and that was fine. And and to be played with and enjoyed and all of those things but not in order to give an impression of professionalism. And I think that's all, it's, it's like we've gone, yeah, it's like we have taken a big step backwards. I feel like that, that is changing, especially with the, the Weinstein stuff coming forward. I was in LA recently. Sorry, did I not mention that? Banging on about it. You never mentioned that, weirdly. Really. <laughs> but we were staying... Oh, God, how embarrassing I was in LA. Um, we were staying in the guest house of a Hollywood actor called Saul Rubinick, who was a very nice bloke. Um, but he's like, you'll recognise him, one of those guys, just a really, really good actor that turns up and stuff. And he says that he's got a daughter who's um, 18 and wants to be an actor. And he said that up until a few months ago, he's been terrified about her going off into the industry on her own. But it's only at this point now that he realises that actually she can be the kind of she can be the kind of human being that she wants to be. Yeah. And it's a really exciting time to be a woman, um, a young woman in, in Hollywood at the moment because... Things have to change. Yeah, it's being it's being absolutely recognised as archaic the way that women are being treated, and I feel like that's something that I'm certainly seeing now. Within certainly within British film, but it's always sort of been there within British mm, film. I mm. think it's always been much more um, diverse in that yes, sense. Yes, I agree. Actually, yeah. Um, yeah. But on stage as well, yeah. 
people are starting to realise that you don't have to be beautiful to be in love on stage, you know. <laughs> we were just talking about it. When yeah, I was, yeah. I'm, like, I'm doing a reading uh, next week of three sisters and my friend, uh, I said to my, a, a good friend of mine, who do you... Who do you want to play? And she said, well, I feel like I'm more of an Olga, but my soul says Masha, but I'm not beautiful enough to be Masha. Mm, mm, and I mm. said, well, when is, tell me when it says that yeah, in the text. Yeah, tell me where yeah. in the text it says that. Yeah. But it's just, we're just so accustomed to seeing that. Because That's obviously, right. only beautiful women have affairs. Only beautiful <laughs> women can fall in love with a person. But also, I mean, forgive me, because I totally understand what you're saying, but I, my younger self is horrified that we've decided that some people are beautiful and some people aren't. Yes, horrified. she's absolutely... Yes, yes, Because me too. genuinely, I think that beauty takes a billion different forms. Agreed. And, and but that is the language we use now, and I yeah. think it's really, it's really dangerous. I know we're about to do Romeo and Juliet and talking to both, you know, actors... Um, men and women about playing the parts and talking to the teenagers in my life about what they think about the play to try and you know catch hold of what it might mean to young people now consistently I get back that Juliet is is wet and when you ask why because she's pretty and nowhere in the text does it say that I mean Mm. it does say that she's beautiful which I think is a different thing she's captivating and magnificent and all sorts of things but pretty suggests a kind of 19th century idea <laughs> of a girl that mm. is ineffective, without agency. Mm. Shakespeare's written this towering part for a, for, a, for a young woman who knows exactly who she is and is entirely um, n- kind of knocking over the expectations of the grown-ups in her life because actually she's in touch with all sorts of things, including her sexual appetites and her, her, her moral compass that are miles ahead of... Um, what we think of when we think of a 14-year-old person. You're absolutely right, talking about beauty in that way. I guess it's just become shorthand, yeah. hasn't it? And certainly, Do you I've, think never, it... I've never really heard it challenged in that way before mm. in the industry mm. at all. Mm. Do you think it has anything to do with the prevalence of uh, screen acting? Because it, it seems to be something that on stage you absolutely don't need people to be beautiful and when they're amazing actors they are the like to us we've talked about before they're so sexy when people who are just amazing whereas on screen because it's a different form of acting and you don't get a sense of whether someone's good or not because it can be cut round and all that sort of stuff that it's almost like they that filmmakers seem to think, well, we need someone beautiful that all audiences will just go, okay, I understand why someone would fall in love with that person mm-hmm. because otherwise there'd be these these questions. That's terrible and yeah. really, obviously really short-term thinking and uh, really limited, but that I can understand why that's more prevalent um, in, in screen acting. But on stage, it just seems unforgivable. I mean, it's unforgivable whatever, but it seems <laughs> utterly... It, insane because oh, you hate someone on stage who's terrible at acting whether they're beautiful or not and it just oh, seems that's like true. that's true but I'm not sure it's I'm not sure it's film that's the the uh, catalyst for that because mm. you know there's been film acting for a very long time before yeah, and you know before a kind of major change in terms of a sexual revolution in terms of equality and through that period and we've had you know thinking about extraordinary women with amazing very different kinds of careers on film, but, you know, Audrey Hepburn, who is devastatingly beautiful, but looked nothing like any of the women who'd gone before, for example. Mm. Or Glenda Jackson, who had an incredible um, screen career, um, maybe has more to come. You know, I don't think that's... Um, God, I don't think that's film. I think, and this is really going to show my age, I suspect, but I think 
the way we use screens has changed. So the whole um, kind of rating each other and ourselves out of five, like we rate shows, <laughs> based entirely on appearance. You know mm. that that then translates into how we look at screens. So it's it, I think it's more to do with the. Um, the availability of things that could change our appearance, the affordability of things that can change our appearance, coupled with ways that we can see ourselves on screen. Because, because screen has also offers a kind of, um, a kind of reality. And there are lots of things I can think of that you know, actually tell us truths about how ways in which people are beautiful that are not conventional. Mm. Um, ways in which people are brave and ugly and all sorts of things you know uh, ugly sometimes in their tragedy and I, so I don't think it's films um, and I don't think it's I don't think it's television because actually I'm a huge fan of really good drama on television because it can get underneath the skin of something but I know what you mean that we live in a world at the moment where the aesthetic on screen the kind of two-dimensional aesthetic is everything but I think that's about how we use screens in our lives it's about how we use phones <laughs> Mm. They're, they're always there. You're always looking in a mirror. People Pop used to live... always available yeah. to you. Mm. Yeah. Just all the time. Yeah. Is it a bit scary to have a, a little girl? <laughs> I, was just, I was just thinking about it because we send each other pictures and you go, so there's no, you know, one doesn't escape it just by thinking it's a thing. Yeah, um, yeah I've got a four and a half year old girl. It is scary, except that she's marvellous. So <laughs> I don't look. Fine. At, I, don't, I mainly don't look at her and go, "It's all going to be a disaster." But what I do what I do feel around her is that definitions of gender are more constraining than when I was a little girl, and that really saddens me. That that the way we think about um, toys, for example, I mean, it's a, such a cliche, but it is true. What you think about toys, mm. the way everyone's first question is, "Is she a boy or a girl?" Or a girl? That because I don't know what to get her or how to talk to her or what to expect of her and she loves Spider-Man and you know mm, meeting other mums going I, you know I, I was really worried about giving her a Spider-Man card because she loves she was dressed, she was dressed as Spider-Man when her mum said that to me <laughs> <laughs> it was really clear that she loves Spider-Man that all those prejudices are such a thicket to get through she doesn't know yet that they're complicated she just <clears throat> just goes well I'm, I'm me and people don't entirely understand that but it's that will get harder for her. So yes, I'm not. I'm not scared. She's a she's a strong little superhero. But um, I can't bear the, the the constraints and definitions that seem pointless and retrospective, retrograde. It's when you talk about like kids in that way, or when you see kids, I guess, or like the ones that you know, that you think actually, yeah, it is it is worth coming and taking a stand. It Especially, really is. Yeah. Oh. We have to make a world in which they're allowed to be themselves. And we claim that we have, particularly in the arts, we claim that we have, and then actually it turns out we've put little boxes out going, choose which one you want to put yourself in, and, <laughs> and then you're yeah. stuck in it. Mm. Well, on that, tell us about the respect policy at the RSA. Yeah, so respect actually came out of some thinking that the organisation had been doing before I arrived, and then it, and it, and then it was quite um, intensive for a year or two after I arrived around um, anxieties about fairness of, tr of behaviours and treatments and whether people were treated differently in different bits of the organisation. We're a very big, very complex organisation. It's one of the things I love about, you know, having my hands on the, on the, on the reins, the deputy reins of an organisation, that, you know, in any given day you might be working with a carpenter, an expert in digital marketing, um, someone who really understands about electricity, uh, um, you know, 
somebody who's, who's a brilliant scenic painter and a performer and then a performer and etc etc someone who can run a restaurant and that therefore means you've got very different worlds and different cultures in each of those bits of the organisation so there was some anxiety about whether people were treated the same appropriately across the organisation and there was anxiety about um, how to deal with behaviour that might present as bullying or inappropriate or uncomfortable how to how to speak up because also another thing about theatres is that you've got a spectrum of people who are very bold and can say, feel they can say whatever they want and other people who might feel very shy in that setting because it's not their world uh, but it is their job and it is their life um, so that's where it came from and I suppose another thing was which is something very close to my heart about being genuinely collaborative and we are, you know we're large and we're old and there are hierarchical things about some of the plays we do because that's the world that that, that that Shakespeare and his contemporaries inhabited probably of leading actors and a sense of you know who 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 had the power in that sense that's maybe shifted a bit so all of those things led to us doing a process across the organization where people from lots of different departments partly volunteered and partly were volunteered by their managers to to have a series of conversations about respect and what we meant by respect um, and to say out loud what inappropriate was we weren't particularly thinking about sexual harassment but we were thinking about just ways of working alongside each other and how we might have some simple mechanisms that were accessible to everyone that meant we could hand it on to people coming into the organisation. So we have lots of people, of course, coming in every season. Mm -hmm. And how we could point to something and say, this is what we believe here. So um, sorry if this is difficult, but that feels like you're straying over a line, which is, that's the hard bit. Yeah, we bet. That's the hard bit. Mm. So it, it sounds mad, but it took us two years to come up with a very, very, very simple poster. And the, the process of getting to the poster was, of course, very important for those staff who participated in it, I think, was important. It was important to me that we'd understood some principles together. But it became a poster rather than just a policy, so that it is in it's as everywhere. many of our rooms. It is everywhere, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. I remember. Um, because the logic, I think it's right, is that you can stand and look at it by yourself. You don't have to go and talk to somebody. You can point at it. You can use it as a way of reinforcing codes of conduct in a particular room. Um, and you can also use it as a, as a manager of any description to say, I know you, you didn't intend to have that effect, but, but you did have that effect. And, and it's not hugely prescriptive. It's about stopping and thinking whether your behaviour is respectful and whether you feel like you want to challenge someone because you didn't feel respected or you didn't feel listened to or included. Well, I remember it very clearly because it was everywhere and it is that reinforcement having something and not that it was you know it was always in a prime location in full view lots of places and you know a lot of a lot of institutions or workplaces will have a court board you know with a flyer mm. on it mm. saying mm. do you feel harassed at work or like don't worry you can tell someone and it, it doesn't feel particularly genuine you know yeah but actually yeah. I w uh, what i would say is that regardless of how many people come forward as a result of it? It, it is a comforting thing. Yes, to yes, have yes. Around. Yes, I think it, I think that's right. That we, what we're sure has worked, is a kind of statement of intent about the culture we want. Yep. Whether it's an effective tool to prevent inappropriate behaviour or to ensure that people speak up and use the channels that are currently available to to talk about feeling uncomfortable, I don't think we know yet. We 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 do know that some you know people have 
used it or cited it to say actually there's something I want to try and address and that's good Um, but one thing I've been thinking about and I'm not really I'm not just talking about the RSC when I say this Um, I know I'm also not alone in thinking about it is that some of those formal channels that work in other kinds of organisations don't seem to be enough in the theatre and it comes back I think to your first question so what I mean is you know, someone starts a new job in pretty much any organisation um, that doesn't involve performing or, or lots of freelancers joining the company that most, most are, where, where most are for permanent. You get your policies and procedures, you're told where the human resources team is, you understand how to make use of them, mm-hmm. and you're told a series of channels that probably start with your line manager but are explicit about if that's not the right way to go because they're part of the issue or you don't, you don't feel that's a trusting relationship, who do you go to next? And we have all of those things. And I think they don't, I don't think they go far enough because there's something about the unfamiliarity. Well, you, you can tell me better than I can tell you, but my sense is there's something about the unfamiliarity of those processes to freelancers where they don't exist everywhere you work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the formality of it. And the fact that your line managers are likely to be part, in some sense or other, of the producing chain in mm-hmm. terms of future work. Yeah. That's making it, it's not enough. And because they're part of the sort of, not just uh, the producing team, but seemingly part of the permanent team, whereas we're the temporary ones who could be, who are dispensable, mm. <laughs> seemingly. Mm. Yes. Mm. I think there's a lot of, um, a lot of the, the, the sort of fear or the lack of communication comes down to feeling dispensable mm-hmm. mm. um, as an actor. And, you know, I feel that pretty much every day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah. that's my, you know, that's my thing. I, don't, but I'm not, I'm, I think I'm not alone. And I think maybe you're probably right. The, for, the formality paired with just that kind of, that kind of feeling mm. is... Uh, I've, I've, I've even written it down, like, there's such a hierarchy mm. in theatre. And as actors, you feel really, really bottom of the rung. And, and as ethnic minority actors, I know that they feel even more bottom of the rung because I've spoken to so many of them. And, and as female actors, often you can be made to feel like that as well, just just casually. Mm. You know, just, just casually. And I suppose, yeah, it's about it's about feeling safe in the workplace and feeling like a company and, and feel like a true member of a collaborative team. No, I'm not surprised to hear you say that. But I would say that a number of members of, of my team now and, and in other organisations I worked in um, who, who work at a distance from the stage would be really surprised to hear that actors feel bottom of the rung because they feel as though the whole organisation points towards the stage and that uh, there are a number of a different kind of privilege that goes mm. with like, like just simply being applauded mm. but also Absolutely. gifts and um, thank yous and drinks and all of those things that don't happen in other workplaces and don't happen in their workplace for mm. them and that's not me suggesting that there's any, that I think both both um, perspectives are of course completely right <laughs> <laughs> but they are at odds yeah. and mm. I think there's something to be done there about walking in each other's shoes sometimes about what that is I hear that there are hierarchies and some of them are very old and um, sometimes don't exist, we just think they do, and some of them are, are, are very, much, very much alive and well. I mean that in, in, within a company of actors as well as within a building. Like, yes. Because, because it's, you can literally look at a piece of paper and see who has the biggest part. Yes. So already there's that that exists. And if you're lucky, you're in a great company where that doesn't exist. And I've certainly worked in companies where that is the case. And when, it, I, when it's my turn to sort of 
carry the team. I try my utmost to make sure that that isn't even considered. However, I can totally see from from the building's perspective how the actors could could seem as though they carry it because of exactly the applause and your faces on the poster and yeah, all these people yeah. who are working behind, yeah. you know, aren't even acknowledged on the poster half the yeah. time. But I guess that it's there's just got to be a happy medium somewhere, right? Because with with all of that comes ego and with the ego yeah, yeah. it comes bad names for actors but at yeah. the same time there are other actors who are I it's think, just a complicated procedure isn't it yeah and i think it's about an intersectional approach in in whatever we're talking about really um because like you say yeah there's different privileges in these different areas from being a main part to being a um uh, not so main part to being part of the permanent staff yeah such yeah. different roles. Well, there's a line in, so I'm doing this, this piece about Miss Littlewood, about Joan Littlewood that Sam Kenyon's written, and Sam's got a line when um, Joan is turned down by the Arts Council for the hundredth time. And, <laughs> she, and she says, they sit there with their sick pay and their paper clips. <laughs> yeah. and, the, and, and of course the people I'm talking about take paper clips, free paper, free paper clips, <laughs> and sick pay for granted. Mm-hmm. And I think, in a way, the solution is that, is that we've we've slightly lost sight of each other because uh, our, our theatres have become very complex organisations for very good reasons, you know, about needing to raise a lot of money and be very professional in our audience reach and all of those things, um, and a billion others besides and other regulations, that it's a good thing that we adhere to, but it requires a lot of people who have other specialisms. So we don't all know what it is to tear a ticket anymore and we don't all know what it feels like to stand in the wings. And we don't all know what it is to sit at a computer all day saying, any chance of giving a second? No, okay, fine. Yeah. We don't know what that feels like either. The endless rejection of the development team or the endless rejection of the press team. Or uh, So I, I'm very keen. I mean, at Northern Stage, we did a lot of enforced job swaps, if they're listening now to laugh. Cause oh, they, cool. sort, they sort That's of hated awesome. them, but it was amazing because they'd come mm, back and like tell that. great stories about being taught how to climb a ladder properly, for example. And, um, and I remember very clearly, actually, some of my technical team saying about sitting in the marketing desk, they couldn't believe that you couldn't ever do the list of things that you set out to do that day. It was unbearable to them. That you, you know, you start a day with a list and you don't do any of it because you're just fighting fire. And you know, it's a silly example, but it taking it away from being on stage or not. I think we just don't know anymore what we do. And if we did, we'd have a, we'd be much better at the mechanisms we need to protect and support everybody. Yes. Because just speaking of. Joan Littlewood and her <laughs> um, multiple Arts Council application uh, rejections. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, how, how is it trying to battle against the, as John McGrath put it in um, Good Night Out, the like, inherently middle-class nature of theatre as it is right now, and particularly the institutions that house theatre? How do you aim for these sort of reforms when some would argue that maybe it needs revolution? <laughs> well, it's very tiring, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, in, you know, inside that battle, I mean, you are right to identify that I have been trying to fight that for some time. <laughs> and inside that battle, you, you, you know, you are... It's not even like trench warfare where there's, there's a load of you on one side and then there's the enemy. 
you are the enemy to everybody because you're suggesting that those people who love the theatre spend a huge amount of money coming to the theatre, those loyalists, you're smaller, <laughs> small in number usually, that they're not allowed because they're middle class or because they're white or because they understood, got it, you know, they did it at schools. So they're not allowed. So you're their enemy because you're not interested in them. And I, they do say that to me, you're not interested in me. It would seem from my <laughs> press appearances that I'm not. So it's fair enough, isn't it? And, and at the same time, those audiences that you're trying to reach, um, are, it's such a, it's so delicate and volatile because you're talking about suggesting that there's something missing from their lives. Mm. That's who's mm. it, it's no business of mine. You know, do people go around going, why don't you go to the football? What can I do mm. to persuade you? No, we don't. We relax about it. So, <laughs> so you know, it's very, it is very hard. However, I understand that in the centre of your question is, are we ever going to win it or should we should give up and start again, tear the buildings down, to give Lynn the keys and say, that's it is, it is done, Lynn Gardner. There you go, there are keys. Sorry, sorry for carrying on for so long. I, I don't think so, obviously. I don't think so. I think the buildings, and I think... This, of course, doesn't mean that they're all perfect, but I think our buildings are... Um, very important sites where you can feel a relationship to a conversation, and a, a, a local conversation, a community conversation, a national conversation, a conversation about story. You can feel part of something um, that lasts and you can find your way in. So actually I have seen a lot of very fine audience development happen in buildings. I, I, before all those theatres, I did work at the Tricycles, very formative, and was my first sort of job in a building. And of course, it has a hugely distinguished history of persuading people that this is their theatre. And that empowerment is, is stayed with me forever. You know, Southwark is still doing it in its <laughs> third building. Um, and on stage, you know, amazing experience of a city that cares about theatre, but like, like all of us, it's, uh, all places, there are people who are confident about that and people are less confident. And building that confidence in my audience the time I was there was an incredible experience that you can do that. And then they go, oh, maybe I'll just come for a cup of tea. Or maybe I'll bring my <laughs> daughter. Or maybe I'll come to that Christmas show. Maybe. Because we're talking about an enormous evolution in somebody's life from this makes me feel stupid, I think I can't afford it, I was taken and I was bored, I had to do it at school, I hated it, it's for show-offs, it's for clever people. To get over all of those things and discover pleasure in it, not just mm -hmm. tolerate it, actually <laughs> like it, to, anyway, yeah. and then still think that you could afford it within your <laughs> life, that you could make the babysitter and blah, 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 mm. um, is an incredible thing. And I think buildings help create that long permanence. You're still there. Um, so, I believe in buildings. I don't think they're the only solution. I think, of course, it's a ridiculous binary. Shall we close buildings <laughs> and just do it elsewhere, or should we just have built? Of course, we should have festivals and, and, and outdoor work and work that is entirely peripatetic and work, please God, work above pubs and work everywhere. Uh, to, to and, and where people are, where people are. You know, one of my favourite experiences of Northern Stage is a piece I made called well, that I produced called Apples, which John Metallic directed and adapted, which is a Richard Millwood novel about teenagers in Middlesbrough. Middlesbrough is not in Newcastle. Everybody south of Middlesbrough thinks it is, and it is not. And so we made the piece originally in a nightclub in Middlesbrough, which is where, where some of it is set. 
And we did that for three nights, and then it went to Edinburgh, and then it, and it did a little tour, and then it came back to Northern Stage. And actually, it was important. It did all those things. It was amazing seeing it in nightclub in Middlesbrough, where there isn't that kind of theatre, and there isn't something for you know 15-year-olds that's about them and about their world. But then they came to Northern Stage, um, some of them, the ones that could get there, and saw themselves on a stage that has a certain status. And that is also a very important part of that journey. So, yeah, you've hit my... Special subject, sore, sore spot, but, I, I, you know, I'm not giving up. Uh, but we have to accept it's about all of it. It's not about throwing one thing out and replacing it with something else. Because there wouldn't be enough cash if we did that. <laughs> well, yeah, there's that too. Fighting a good fight. We tell us about Miss Isselwood. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, and there's so much to say. We're just in the middle of a little <laughs> workshop. Um, so, Sam Kenyon has written books, music and the lyrics to a new sort of um, chamber musical, I suppose, quite a petite musical for the Swan Theatre in Stratford. Um, quite petite. Quite petite. It's, it's 400 seats, but, it's, you know, <laughs> it's, not, it's not got a full orchestra. Okay, it's a small band of musicians. And very importantly, it has seven women playing Joan Litherwood, six <clears throat> playing her at six different moments in her life, and, um, and one actress playing her Kind of looking, kind of looking back. Although that makes it sound wistful, and it certainly isn't wistful at all. <laughs> anyway, she's come back. She's got unfinished business, I think. Um, and we call her Miss Littlewood. And then we've got Jones one to six. So that's an amazing thing. It's sort of cool. seven ages of woman, um, high time. And there's yeah. another woman. There's just eight women playing protagonist roles in the show, and two men. And that's delicious in itself. Um, <laughs> and it's it's it is telling her life story because her life story is not well known. Um, of course not everyone knows who Joan is in the first place but those people who do know a bit of theatre history or are interested in it will probably know that she directed Lovely War they might know that she uh, with her company Theatre Workshop found and sort of revived Stratford East that was derelict theatre and is now an amazing theatre of Stratford East but they probably they probably don't know more than that so we do start at the beginning and tell her story she was born in 1914 in Stockwell, but I won't tell you the whole story. But there were amazing things in it. Like she walked to Manchester, having walked out of RADA because she couldn't bear it. Little class elitism. She was she was there then. Uh, she walked to Manchester probably. Uh, she certainly claimed that she did. Um, you know, she was amazing. And the, and the and the 1930s in Manchester was the sort of hotbed of outrageously um, feisty political theatre. She was briefly part of a group called the Red Megaphones. You couldn't make that up, but it's true. <laughs> be believed if you did. Um, so she's extraordinary and she's very influential for me because um, she insisted on her principles and her way of working and she, I'm not sure she ever really wanted Arts Council funding. She was furious she wasn't entitled to it, furious <laughs> that she was refused it and thought they should change their spots entirely but she but she would have also liked them to just go away with their kind of um complicated application system mm. and their mm. values and all, you know so she's extraordinary and um i don't think her gender's very interesting but for me it's a little bit interesting because she's if you think about her contemporaries um peter hall peter brooke um Jevenon, et cetera, um travis a bit younger than her but um uh, you no. Know, um, uh, nonetheless, th this kind of clutch of very, very brilliant, but a very particular kind of powerful intellectual man, and she fought through that and did her own thing entirely. Um, 
I think she was brutal. Ding dong. That's time. It is actually. Oh, it is. Anyway. Oh, wait, hang on. She was brutal. Tell us how she was brutal. She was brutal. I think she was really tough to work for. Um, <laughs> they, they, they loved her and they hated her, her closest colleagues, because she was, yeah, she was really tough and she would knock you down at slightest opportunity. Um, Fantastic. <laughs> it sounds like a musical that I would like to see. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Very good. Thank you so much, Erica. I know you got to go, but we pleasure. really appreciate it. And that was really interesting. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for asking.